Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. I'm just going to jump straight into my, my sermon title. Today's my sermon title is this. Soul Prosperity, Firm and Secure. Firm and Secure. This is my message title this morning. Firm and Secure. I wish I can say the same about my apps, but it's not currently there. But work in progress. Work in progress. I carve the marble and set the angel free. That's what Michelangelo said. So, yes, I need to carve myself. And uh, this comes from a passage of scripture in Hebrews 6.19. I'd like to read it for you. It's the BB boy scripture. It goes like this. How many BB boys we have here? Yeah. Yay! Okay. Very beautiful. Oh, you also? Hey! <laughs> yeah, Chris went for that. But now, if you chance upon BBY, ask me to show you the BBY handshake. Just do it, just do it. Oh, it's, it's all sorts of violation right there. Okay, never mind. Yeah, let's go to Hebrews 6.19. Okay, it goes like this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Everybody say firm. You know you want it firm. And secure. Firm and secure. We have this hope that's firm and secure. You know, if you will do a little bit of word study and you will study those words firm and secure, the word secure actually means constant. We have this hope as an anchor and that hope, that anchor is constant. You know, we, we've heard teachings in the body of Christ that you know there are times and seasons, you know, we go through valley experiences, we go through mountaintop experiences, we go through all sorts of experiences as Christians. But you know, no matter what season you go through or what you're experiencing in life, God wants you to thrive in every season. There is no excuse for you to not thrive in life, for you to not have hope in life. You know, there's this uh, story in the Bible where Jesus walked past uh, a fig tree and uh, Jesus wanted some figs. You know, he walked past a tree looking for figs and he saw that there were no fruits on the, on the tree. And then he walked to the tree and he cursed it. He cursed it and the tree died. But most of us, you know, we, we are familiar with this story, but we don't know some of the surrounding passages uh, around that particular verse. And it is said in the Bible that it wasn't the tree season to bear fruit. It wasn't a tree season barefoot. So picture this, you know. The tree did nothing wrong, supposedly, you know. It wasn't the tree season barefoot. Jesus was like, I want fruit from this tree. And he saw that there was no fruit and he cursed it. Here's what I, I've pulled up from that passage of scripture. Jesus demands us to be fruitful in every season. In every season, we are called to thrive. In every season, we are called to be firm and secure. In every season, we are called to have hope. Heresy? No? Oh. Am <laughs> I making sense? That was just poor timing, but... Am <laughs> I making sense? See, the goal of our Christian faith, I believe, you know, the, it's, it's marked by this main pursuit, and this pursuit... It's the pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. 
That's why we do what we do as a community. That's why we engage with the Word of God. That's why we worship. That's why we sacrifice. That's why we are part of community because it's, it's all with that great goal and the great pursuit to become more like Jesus. Can we agree on that? Yes? To become more like Jesus, you know? And one of the, the things that um, I, I struggle with in, in, in the Bible, um, or I find it really challenging, is, is this verse. And it's said of Jesus that Jesus in his life on earth, only did what he saw the Father doing. He only did what he saw the Father doing. And that provokes me and that challenges me. Because here's the implication. It means that when Jesus was faced with any circumstance, any situation, in all his interactions, he did what he saw the Father doing. If I can stretch that a bit further... I would say that Jesus never lived in reaction to circumstance, in reaction to situations, in reaction to the devil. He only lived in response to the Father. He only lived in response to the Father. And if our goal, if this goal of, of my life as a Christian is to become more like Jesus, then my pursuit, the pursuit of my life is to live in response to the Father and not in reaction to the devil, to circumstances, to negativity. Yeah. That making sense? Yeah. No, that's, that's the goal of my life. But here's the thing. No, we, we all know that we face you know, certain situations and we face certain you know, negative reports and it triggers a reaction, yes? It was really hard to maintain your hope in the midst of that. That making sense? Yeah? You know... Here's what we are often guilty of. We are often guilty of exalting the magnitude of our problems above God's ability to bring deliverance to that situation. You know, and, and you know, we, we are guilty as a church. You know, because for in, some, in some way, we celebrate that. You know, when people come with a woe is me mentality, I've come to the end of myself, I have nothing. And we, we celebrate that. We celebrate that. You know, we're like, okay, you know, let, let us... You know, pray for you, let us empathize with you, let us meet you right where you're at. Great, I love all that. You know, but I mentioned in a, a couple of sermons ago that God doesn't just want us to experience empathy, He wants us to experience freedom. Recognize that the circumstances dire. Recognize that this situation is negative. But you shouldn't stay there. You shouldn't live in reaction. You shouldn't live trapped in that negativity. If our goal is to become more like Jesus in our thinking, in our speech, in our deed, then we should and ought to be a people of hope. Because this is what hope does. Hope does not deny the existence of a problem. It denies it a place of influence. It denies it a place of influence. Not making sense. You know, when um, the Bible... Uh, tells us this story where um, Jesus was informing his disciples that he was going to die. He was like, okay, guys, you know, it's a good while it lasted, but I'm going to go on the cross now. And he was explaining to his disciples, uh, uh, you know, he's, I have to go on the cross. And then, you know, the Bible comes with this, that Peter pulled Jesus aside. Okay, think about it. He pulled Jesus aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. Bible accounts of this, he began to rebuke Jesus. Peter was like, no, Lord, you don't know what you're saying, you know. 
it will not happen. He began to rebuke the Lord. And this is what Jesus said of Peter. Okay, and, and bear in mind that this happened okay, after Peter's big revelation where Jesus said that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but by the Father. You know? And Peter was at like, his pinnacle, at his high point. And then Peter, with all that gusto and confidence, decides to pull the Messiah, decides to pull Almighty God aside and tell him that, hey, I think you are wrong. And so Jesus looks at Peter and he rebukes him and he, said, he says this, Get behind me, Satan, for your things, for your mind are, it's filled with the, your, for your mind is not filled with the things of God, but with the things of men. Jesus said that to one of his disciples, get behind me, Satan. I don't think that in that moment, Satan like possessed Peter and then, you know, Satan was controlling Peter like a puppet. I don't think that's how it happened, you know? But I, I want you to catch what Jesus is saying. He said this, Get behind me, Satan, for you, Peter, your mind is not filled with the things of God, but it's filled with the things of men. Notice that, that Jesus didn't say, your mind is filled with occultic things. He didn't say, your mind is filled with witchcraft. He didn't say, your mind is filled with murderous thoughts, evil thoughts. He didn't say any of that. But he said that your mind is filled with the things of men and not the things of God. I'd like to suggest to you uh, this one thought. That human thinking without Christ at its center can be perverted into a demonic stronghold. Human reasoning without Christ at its center is demonic in nature. Strong statement. But bear in mind that you and I were never meant to function apart from the Lord. You and I were created for dependence. You and I were created to thrive, to flourish in the presence of God. And we've talked about it this whole series that we were not designed to function apart from God. That we as human beings are designed with a specific set of needs that only God can fulfill. And so, human reasoning, thinking, your perception, if it's not governed by Christ, can be perverted. And I would like to extend that truth further that it is demonic by nature. We have to understand that in this life, on this earth, there are no gray areas. There is no neutral zone. You're either part of his kingdom or you're not. There is no neutral ground. Are you all with me? There is no neutral ground. You know, if I, I can, you know, I was talking to some of my leaders and, and I was sharing them like a, a perspective I have, you know, when, when it comes to uh, uh, church and why I'm so passionate about preaching the word and, and not diluting it and giving it to you as it is. Because I personally believe that if you don't burn for Jesus, you will burn in hell. I'm dead serious, you know. Some of us think that Christianity, you know, there, there are varying degrees to it. There are the passionate guys, there are the churchgoers, and there are the ones who say the prayer and then they are in. There are no gray areas. And so you are either governed by 
hope by Christ-like thinking or your thoughts are governed and influenced and divined by another power. I would like to suggest to you that there are only two powers at play here. You're making sense. How many of you know that the devil is not on an equal playing field as God? You know, I, I appreciate some of these lovely paintings where they paint God and the devil and God and the devil are arm wrestling and they're, like, they're fighting over your lives kind of thing. Not even close. The devil is a created being. Okay? He doesn't even compare to the creator. It's, it's said in the scripture that you know, in the last days when we see him, we'll, we'll go, that is all? <laughs> you know, you're so insignificant. You, that small person is causing all of this. The devil is that insignificant. The, the Bible says this, that, that Jesus, through the work of the cross, has disarmed every principality and power. Disarmed. And the word there, you know, if you study in its original context, it literally means this. It literally means to chop off the arms and the legs of a king that has been conquered, tie him to the back of a chariot, and drag him through a city. The Bible does, doesn't just stop at disarm principalities power. It says that he made them a public spectacle. That making sense. But we are guilty of this. We often exalt the devil's ability to terrorize above God's ability to deliver. That making sense. We're familiar with the story, you know, in, in the Bible where it talks about the children of Israel in the wilderness. And, you know, it, it said that God would show up in the cold night as a fire, a pillar of fire. And he would show up in the hot day as a cloud, right? Pillar of fire by day, cloud by night. I believe that God specializes in showing up opposite, contrary to circumstance. I think, you know, that, that the darkness we see in the world today, your circumstance, the negativity you may face in your life, sets a stage for God's sovereign intervention. And that, that is why, you know, Paul says this, that God is able to make all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. You know, this is what the word hope means in the Bible. Okay, it means the confident anticipation of good. The confident anticipation of good. This hope that we are meant to be governed by this hope that we are meant to carry in on our hearts, is almost defiant in nature. That in the face of circumstance, in the face of situations, you choose to have hope. And this hope is, hey, that looks negative, that looks bad, that looks terrible, but I am governed by hope. My perspectives are all in line with hope. And that hope suggests to me and says to me that I can expect good to come out from this. And that's why we have that verse that he is able to make all things work together for good. The cross stands as a, a picture of that. Dark, gruesome, terrible. Jesus was beaten, bruised, killed on that cross. But today, because of 
what he has accomplished on the cross because he is no longer on the cross, but he is risen from the dead. That cross today becomes a symbol of beauty and adoration. It says to us that no matter how dark a situation looks like, it can be turned into beauty in an instance. Am making sense? And this is the hope we have as an anchor. Firm and secure. Our blessed hope. Firm and secure. You know, I talked about four needs of the soul when I started a series. You know, we have four needs. How many of you remember them? Yeah, we have a need for satisfaction. We have a need for significance. We have a need for solace. And we have a need for security. And today I want to talk about our soul's need for solace. And solace is defined uh, this way in the Bible. Uh, in, in the dictionary. Dictionary is not the Bible. Solace is defined this way in the dictionary. It, it is comfort in the midst of great distress. Comfort in the midst of great distress. Some dictionaries would translate it as peace in the midst of great distress. I believe our souls crave for that kind of peace. I'll describe it as a prevailing peace. Think of you know, Jesus in the midst of the storm, having that perfect peace when all that chaos was going around him. Our souls crave for that peace. Why? Because today, you and I, we live in a world full of trouble, full of storms. And Jesus intends for us to thrive in the midst of all of that, for our internal world to define our external one. And so our souls in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of trouble, craves for that perfect peace to sleep in that storm. Comfort in the midst of great distress. I'd like to suggest to you that you can only thrive in negativity, in circumstance, when you have that hope as an anchor. Think about that, you know, an anchor for your soul that keeps you grounded, that keeps you rooted, that secures you. Think about that, and hope as an anchor. That means that my soul, no matter what happens around me, no matter what goes on around me, is secured in that hope. Are you all with me? I like to bring up a quote. Uh, it's from a man named Francis Fedropine. He says this, that any area of your life that isn't filled with hope is under the influence of a lie, and that area is a stronghold of the devil. Any of area of your life that isn't filled with hope is under the influence of a lie, and that area is a stronghold of the devil. Paul, in teaching uh, spiritual warfare in the Bible, says this, that uh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Mighty in God through the pulling down of strongholds. And it goes on to say that we cast down every argument and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So what does it mean? What, what are these strongholds? I'd like to suggest to you that the warfare that we engage as Christians is a battle in the mind. It's a battle in the mind. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God in pulling down these strongholds. And the quote says this, that, that any area of life that isn't filled with hope is under the influence of a lie, and that area is a stronghold of the devil. Our fight with the enemy isn't a physical one. 
and the lies of the enemy, if we allow it to influence us, can become a stronghold in our mind. There is a war for your hope this morning. There's a war for you to be influenced by a power that is not of the Lord. I started with this thought earlier that we can be influenced by one of two powers. Should we allow, it, allow ourselves to be? And my suggestion to you is that whenever your thoughts, your perspectives on a situation does not look hopeful, you are being influenced by another power, and that is the devil. And without that hope, without being secured in hope, your soul will be shaken in every storm. Your soul is not anchored. Your soul is not firm and secure. I'm making sense. No, I've, I've, I've spoken on hope before, you know, and, and you know, it, it, it can sound like a message where I, I just go, hey, you just got to hope. You just got to do it. But, you know, most of us, you know, I, I believe all of us have been through situations, moments of distress where hope seems to be the last thing on your mind. Yeah, you know, or you have faced, you know, certain loss, disappointment, and it's really difficult to find your hope again. Psalms 42, you know, it, it, there's this verse and this is David, you know, almost processing. He says this to his soul. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? That word disturbed, you know, it... it you know, it doesn't really fully capture the, the meaning of that word in the, the original text. That word disturb means to uh, growl, roar, murmur, uh, make a commotion. It's a place of great noise, great distress. Why so disturbed? Oh my soul. And we have to understand the context of Psalm 42. And this is David, you know, what happened to him in this moment is his own son, Absalom, had formed a conspiracy against him. His life was threatened. He was removed from the throne. His friends abandoned him. He was removed from the worship and spiritual presence of God in the temple. And David was at a point where he lost almost everything. He had every reason to be hopeless. He was in great distress. But yet, you know, in this psalm, he, he, he questions his soul. Why so downcast? Oh my soul, why so disturbed within me? And that psalm shifts and he goes, put your hope, my soul, in God. For I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. David was able to hope even in the midst of circumstance. Even in the midst of circumstance. We live in attention today as Christians, in the attention of what is true and what is truth. We know what is truth. We read the word of God. We know the attributes of God. We know who He says He is. We know who He says we are. We live knowing that truth. But we also live in attention to what is true. Where the world today, the reality we live in doesn't really match up or tally with what we know as truth. And oftentimes, you know, we go, we, we, we stand in the crossroads there where we have what is true, what is reality, what is real, what is apparent. And what is truth, what is not yet seen, what is not yet realized. And we have to make a decision in moments like these to, 
choose to align with what is apparent, real, and let that define what goes on within us, or, truth, or choose to hold on to truth. And a person who is governed by hope, in hope, a person whose perspectives are in line with Christ will always choose truth over truth. Am I making sense? See, our Christianity is often referred to as the Christian faith. What then is faith, you know? The Bible says this, that we live by faith and not by sight. And sight, I would suggest to you, means certainty. Living by faith means trusting in the midst of uncertainty. I also say that faith is only in function when there's mystery attached to it. You can't really exercise faith when you know everything, when everything is certain. Part of this journey as Christians is that we will come into moments in life, we will come into certain situations and circumstances where everything that's going on is telling us to not stand in truth, to not choose hope. And where our faith comes into play, where we intentionally make a decision to walk out of faith, is in moments like this, where we choose to choose truth over what is true and what is apparent. And that is what distinguishes us as believers. As a people governed by hope, as a people who have Christ in us. Because everything around you, if you approach it rationally, if you approach it logically and practically, it will say to you that, hey, abandon all these beliefs, it doesn't work because it's not happening. It's in moments like these where we are distinguished as Christians. That making sense? Are you okay? Doing good? The truth is our Christian walk is a walk of mystery. If all that God does is predictable, then we have a God limited to the size of our human understanding. Hope in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of mystery, in the midst of not knowing. You know, one of the things I, I had the privilege of doing in the last few years, you know, I had the privilege of going to a bunch of uh, healing meetings, you know, and seeing God uh, move, you know, in the miraculous and signs and, and wonders, you know. And, you know, in these meetings, you know, I've seen you know, people with knee conditions get healed. I've seen people with back conditions. With I've seen people uh, even, you know, coming in with glasses and leaving without glasses. You know, I've seen God do the miraculous. You know, but it's also in these same meetings that, I've seen people come in with terminal conditions uh, in wheelchairs, people who really, really desperately need a touch from God. You know, they are, they're in terminal state. And I've seen these people come into these meetings where God is moving in power and leave the same way they came in. You know, and it's often in, in, in situations like that, I ask myself the question like, hey, you know, the, the fella that got healed, you know, uh, and, and doesn't need the glasses, he doesn't really need that healing, yeah? And I'm like, you know, he, he can probably live with it. But here you have a person, you know, with cancer who is, is confined to a wheelchair who so desperately needs that healing. Why didn't God touch that person? Why wasn't that person healed? 
And it's so easy to speculate in moments like this, you know, and you, we, we often think that, hey, you know, in God's economy that he only has a limited amount of healing to dispense, you know, and like, you know, hey, why you waste on that one? You know, what about that one? And we, we, we speculate, we, we go through all sorts of things like, oh, maybe the person has sinned or maybe God wants to use the cancer to glorify his name. And we come up with all sorts of speculation, yeah? Am I the only one? I'm not the only one, I think. You know, we, all, we speculate all the time, but like, why, why would God do this? Why would God do that? Going back to the first point, if we speculate and come to assumptions that are not filled with hope, that are not governed by Christ, our assumptions and perspectives are defined and influenced by another power. Oftentimes, it's in moments like these you know, where you are faced with mystery, you are faced with uncertainty, you lack explanations to questions that you have in your heart. In those moments, you can choose to abandon hope and run to the arms of pure logic and reasoning. Or choose to exercise that faith you so profess you live by. Am I making sense? You know, last year, me, me and Christine, we went to a, a hospital, you know, and I uh, was asked to go there by, by a friend of mine, you know, and we prayed for a baby boy that was uh, seven months old. And you know, this baby boy, he uh, was born with a condition. He had uh, fluid build up in his head. You know, and it, it was pretty bad. You know, when he was born, uh, his head, you know, the, the circumference of the head was 40 centimeters. 40 centimeters. You know, and by the time we prayed for the boy, he was seven months old. And the doctor said that uh, after each month, you know, the baby's uh, head circumference will go anywhere from like two to three centimeters. You know? And so by the time we met him, though, the baby boy's head was really big. You know, and, um, and because of all that fluid buildup, you know, the baby couldn't see. Uh, you know, its eyesight uh, was completely uh, un undeveloped, you know, and it could barely hear about like maybe five percent hearing. And because the head was so big, you know, and the baby, the body was so small, the baby couldn't uh, really lift his head, you know, and and uh, couldn't crawl because they were so afraid that that sheer weight, you know, if it's um, left, you know, um, unsupported, it would crush um, the, the spinal cord, you know, it would break the baby basically. And and so we we went there and. Um, you know, my, my friend was like, hey, you know, the, the mom is uh, in a real uh, desperate situation. I was like, okay, sure, uh, I would love to, to, to pray for her and, um, and, and the baby. And so we went there and uh, we prayed for the, the baby boy. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's one of those moments where, you know, I, I prayed and I was so filled with faith in that moment, you know. And, and I'm sure some of you have experienced that, you know, when you pray and the presence of God just comes into a room and it gives you this search of faith, this search of belief that, hey, Lord, yes, God can do it, you know, and, and I was so filled with hope, you know, in that moment. And a week later, you know, I, I remember I was in church on Sunday morning and, and I got a text from my friend that uh, the baby boy had passed on. And so, you know, I, I was sitting there, you know, in church, you know, in the presence of God, worshipping. And I remember the songs that day, we were declaring faith, nothing is impossible, he's able to do all things. And faced with that situation, hey God, you said that you heal. You said that you are a healer. God, you said okay, that when we lay hands on sick, they will be healed. I felt your presence in that moment. I felt you. I felt that faith in me. 
I checked the last time I was without sin when I prayed for a baby. And so I was like, <laughs> you know, maybe I check off the box. Everything seems to suggest that the baby was going to be healed, but the baby died. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? The truth is, you know, I don't know till today. And the truth is, as a pastor, I feel somewhat responsible that I need to speculate and come to some kind of conclusion to, you know, and it's almost the easy thing to do, right? You know, when the mom is grieving and has so much questions and part of your, uh, you know, part of the, the way, you know, I'm, I'm why is, oh, I want to give you answers to the questions so that you can feel comforted, so that you can get some form of closure. But how many of you know that oftentimes when we do that, you know, we speculate ourselves out of, you know, the very theology and very doctrines we believe in. And so in the face of uncertainty, in the face of mystery, we then have an, op- an option. Either choose to abandon all that is hope. Choose to run to logic, pure logic and reasoning. Or choose to walk out that faith you so profess to live by. Most of us, you know, I hope, wouldn't be caught or wouldn't face a situation or circumstance like that. But all of us, to some degree and to some extent, have certain areas of, if I could put it this way, mystery in our life. We are not sure why this thing is happening. We are not sure why God would allow for these things to happen. We are not sure why these things are repeatedly occurring in my life. Mystery, you know. How do we approach pain? How do we approach distress? How do we approach disappointment? How do we find that solace, comfort in the midst of great distress? You know, I, I remember uh, an, another story of a, of a friend of mine. Is, is it okay if I tell stories? Yeah. You know, uh, his name is uh, Joshua Frost. You know, his uh, dad was uh, a man named uh, Jack Frost. And Jack Frost, uh, you know, wrote a ton of books, great books, and he wrote books on the Father's, Father Heart of God and an amazing, amazing man of God. You know? And I knew Joshua briefly in my time in school. And Joshua was telling me this story where you know, um, he was in school and uh, he received a call that you know, his dad was dying. His dad died of uh, stage 4 lung cancer. And so he rushed back and uh, managed to see his dad uh, on, on the deathbed and said goodbye. You know? And he stayed on to uh, be, you know, um, to... Uh, to have the funeral, and in the funeral, you know, uh, he was tasked to give the eu- eulogy uh, for his dad, you know, and uh, he told me this story that when he got up to uh, share the eulogy, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said that, hey, there's someone here with stage 4 lung cancer, and I want you to pray for that person. And bear in mind that his dad had just died of lung cancer. And so he gets up and he begins to share this eulogy and he resisted it for a period of time and, and he finally caved and like, you know, I, hey, this is weird, but I feel like there's someone here with stage 4 lung cancer that I need to pray for. And right in the front row was a friend of uh, his dad's and it was a lady and that lady had stage 4 lung cancer and she was given weeks to, to live. And so he was like, you know what, I'm just going to pray for you because I, I heard God tell me so. And so he walked up and he prayed for her. And the next thing you know, she receives a doctor's report that she was completely cancer-free, that she was healed. And when I was talking, you know, she was still alive. You know, she, the cancer didn't come back. She was completely healed. I have questions. <laughs> Why didn't God heal 
his father? Why did God choose to heal that person there? You know, is there really a limit to God's healing power and grace? You know, mystery. We do not know. Back to a point I made earlier. If all that God does is predictable and explainable, then we have a God that is limited to the size of our human understanding. And His ways is higher than our ways. It's not just a verse we profess. It's not just a prayer we pray. It's a belief. It's a perspective. It's a mindset we embrace. That when I come face to face with things that I don't understand, and everything seems to contradict what I know to be truth, I can either partner with the pain, choose to stay in that negativity, or choose to hope again. Choose to shift my mindset, to align my thoughts and my perspectives, to align with Christ, to be governed by hope instead of being influenced by another power. Am I making sense? Now I'll close off uh, you know, by talking about David. You know, I draw a lot of inspiration from the life of David. You know, and the truth is, you know, when, when I talk about these things, you know, I personally you know, don't have a lot of life experience when, when it comes to dealing with great moments of distress and pain and disappointment. But here's the truth, you know, and this is as blunt as it can be. We will all face the pain of loss at some point in our lives. We will all face the pain of loss at some point in our lives. Here's a st- st- statistic, you know, 10 in 10 people die. <laughs> it's true, right? We will all face the pain of loss at some point in our lives. And we need to get this right and sorted out. You know, or else, you know, when the storms of life come, when these big hits, distress, disappointments come, our soul the very state of our internal world will be shaken and we will lose all sorts of security. And the Bible says this, that, hey, the storms can come against you. Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope as an anchor, firm and secure. And I think David in the Bible was a man who suffered countless seasons of loss but found hope in God's time, in, 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 in God time and time again. David would be, you no. Know, truly the most qualified to give us instruction to hope again. You know, and we've seen David, you know, uh, thrive, you know, in, in the darkest of situations, the darkest of seasons, you know. There's this story in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It goes like this, you know, when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Imagine that. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. And let's move to the next slide. And it says that David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But then it says this, this is the clincher. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In the midst of the most dire of circumstances, unimaginable. I don't think any of us experienced this. Where our sons, our daughters, our wives... Uh, we're taken captive nowhere. Our closest friends, our allies, our friends will talk about killing him. He was in this place of great distress, great pain, great disappointment. But it's in that context, 
It's in having disappointment, in facing mystery, in facing uncertainty, that David chose make a conscious decision to strengthen himself in the Lord. See, what distinguishes us as a people is that we live by faith and not by feeling. We live by faith and not by feeling. David, in the midst of all that, chose to have faith in his God instead of being trapped in the negativity of his own speculations. What does that look like practically for you and me? It means that you know, when we come to church, when we engage the presence of God, you might be feeling a certain way. You might be going through some stuff or you might not just be feeling any sort of motivation that morning. But how many of you know that you are not created to be a thermostat to presence, a, a thermometer to presence? That means that, you know, it doesn't mean like I stand there and when I feel presence, then my hand go up slightly or when I feel more, then my hand goes up a bit higher. No. We show up. We are people motivated by faith. That means that even when we don't feel all together, we don't feel the motivation to do so, when we are facing difficult situations, we choose to exercise faith. We choose to show up. You're making sense. The Bible says that it is with faith and patience that we inherit the promises of God. That word patience, you know, it means to stay, staying power. With faith and the conviction and intentionality to stay true to cause, we inherit the promises of God. Most of the time, you know, when we face a difficult situation, we almost give ourselves a, a pass. Like, you know, hey, you know, I'm going through a hard stuff, times and seasons, up and down. I then get to disengage. I then get to drop the ball on my convictions, drop the ball on what I've committed to. But Jesus demands for us to thrive in every season. And so today, no, I want to close off with this. I believe David would be the most qualified to give us the instruction to hope. Again, I believe David, you know, through his Psalms, you know, through his various experiences, gives us insight on how to process pain, disappointment, and how to hope again. You know, some of you today, you might be facing some really negative stuff. You know, I empathize with you, but you know, I want to tell you that there is hope in Christ Jesus, that you don't have to stay in the midst of the negative. You don't have to stay trapped in that, but you get to hope again. And when you choose to do so, your soul is firm, is secure, and the storms of life will not be able to shake you. And so I'm, in, I'm ending off my message with this. Some instructions from David. I figured that the sermon would be very heavy leading up to this, so here's a light briefer. Some instructions from David, you know? Yeah, that's horrible. Okay, moving on. You know, and uh, I just want to, you know, it's, it's going to be really simple. I'm just going to read uh, four psalms to you, and each psalm, I'm just going to draw a couple of truths, and then we're going to close. All right? Cool. Let's read this, this psalm. Psalm 62. It goes like this. You know, and this is David. It says, How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down? This leaning wall, this tottering fence, surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies with their mouths. They bless, but in their hearts they curse. Next slide. Talking about his enemies. And then he says this, Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from Him. 
Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. The first step, you know, I believe in to, to restoring hope, to coming back to hope, is to rest your soul. Everybody say, rest your soul. You know, we, we know that rest is part of the Ten Commandments. You know, we all know not to commit adultery, yes? We all know not to commit murder, yes? Yes, but how many of you know that the Fourth Commandment states that you should rest? Thou shalt rest. You know, we are all okay with the other commandments, but this commandment to rest, we often take it lightly. But it's so important, it's so vital, it's so part of God's heart for you that He puts it in the original ten. Rest is a commandment. Rest in the Hebrew is the word nuach, and it simply means, it means to be quiet. It means to be quiet. Rest your soul. Get away from noise. You know, we, we read about Jesus processing pain, you know. It says this, that, um, that Jesus, when he heard of John the Baptist's death, you know, when he heard you know, that hey, his close friend, his cousin is dead, he withdrew himself from the people. Okay, and I believe he withdrew himself to quiet his soul, to rest his soul. Many times, you know, when we encounter hardship, difficulty, circumstances, we choose, okay, to hide ourselves in work. We choose to hide ourselves, you know, and almost numb the pain. Can I suggest to you that there's a difference between hiding in religion and hiding in God? Some people, you know, you deal with negative circumstances, situations. You come to church and you do the church thing. You do all the right things. You show up, you worship, you read your Bible, you do all the right things. But you almost sidestep the big issue. There's a difference between hiding in religion, hiding in work, in activities, and hiding in God. And David does so. No? He, he goes and, and the, the psalm ends this way. It says, trust in Him at all times. You people, pour out your hearts to Him. For God is our refuge. Prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue. It says this, no, be still and know that I am God. The next time I want to read is Psalm 13. It says this, no, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? It says this, no, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Let's put the next slide up. You know, in this slide, in, in, in the, sorry, the previous slide, you know, in this slide, you know, David almost processes his pain, almost uh, sings about his pain. He sings, how long will you forgive me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle my thoughts? And I believe the next instruction to restoring hope, to coming back to home, is to pray your pain. To pray your pain. You know, oftentimes when we approach, you know, these situations, we almost, you know, default to the very right Christian prayers. You know, thou, O Lord, uh, mighty and awesome. Uh, you know, things might not look good for me right now, but I know that thy rock and thy staff comforteth me. You know, and we pray the, the really right, and to be very frank, religious prayers. 
But you know, the Bible says this, that you know, in the last days, in, in that day, he's searching for worshippers who will worship in spirit and in truth. And the word truth there is not doctrinal truth. The word truth means to have nothing hidden. We are incapable of true authentic worship if we have things hidden. I'd like to suggest to you something that the Lord can handle your junk. <laughs> he is almighty God, creator of the universe. He can handle it. He will not be offended. Choose to not okay, default to the typical suggested Christian prayers. But make a decision, make an intentional decision to be authentic, to be vulnerable, to pray your pain. Say it again, hope does not deny the existence of a problem. It denies it a place of influence. David did not ignore the pain and circumstance, but he chose to use it as a stage, as a context to praise God with. That's where praise becomes a sacrifice. It becomes a sacrifice when there's a cost attached to it. Pray your pain. Next Psalm I want to read is Psalm 143. Are you guys still good? Okay, goes like this. David, brilliant guy. He says, The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. Then he says, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. I believe the next instruction to hope is to meditate, from past, meditate on past victory, victories. To meditate on past victories. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. Meditation today is often associated with emptying your mind. But the word meditate in the Bible actually means to bring to recollection, to matter, to sing, and to fill your mind with that thought. It's like, you know, if you look at it, you know, develop some imagery, it's like a cow chewing curd. You know, it swallows food, brings it up and chews it again, swallows it and brings it up and chews it again. Whatever you choose not to fill and you leave empty on purpose, okay, will be filled by something else. When you choose to empty your mind, can I suggest to you that someone is waiting at your door keen to fill your mind, keen to fill that void that you have created. When you choose to sidestep the issue and not think about it, put it aside and not engage with it, the enemy is waiting to influence, to fill that void that you have created. And that is why meditation is such a key thing that we need to bring back in the church. Fill your mind. Fill your mind with the thoughts of God. Fill your mind with the things of God. Fill your mind with the things He has done and choose not to disengage. Choose not to sidestep the issue. The truth is we have all seen God moved in our lives, but we tend to think that the miracles of God are just temporary interventions, but instead they are the revelations of, a nature, of the nature of God who makes covenant with his children. We think of the miracles, the provisions of God as temporal interve- interventions instead of a revelation of his unchanging nature and goodness toward us. That means that when I see him heal a person, when I see him heal you know, people around me, then my belief systems have to shift and have to align. It's not just a temporal intervention, it's a revelation of his character, its attributes, his nature. 
That if he healed that person, he can do the same for me. He can do the same for my family. Yeah. Making sense? Yeah. I'll wrap up with this. You know, the last psalm I want to read. Go on. Down. Psalm 20. It says this, you know, The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victory, victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust the name of the Lord, our God. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. The practical thing to do in war is to trust in the might of your army. But David says, I choose to trust in God's name. What distinguishes the believer from everybody else is we ought to have, at times, an irrational, unpractical perspective. Because God himself transcends all human logic and reasoning. Any thinking without Christ at its center is demonic and destructive in nature. We are not to hope and trust in what is apparent, what's rational or what's popular, but we trust in the name of the Lord. You have often heard it said, expect the worst, but I say to you, God says he can do exceedingly abundantly above what you can conceive or imagine. You have heard it said, what's lost is lost, but God says, instead of shame, I will restore to you a double portion. You have heard it said that death is final, but God says death has lost its sting. The grave is without a victory. We know that every loss on earth is temporal, but the victory we have in overcoming the trials of this life stands eternal. It was Elijah who defeated Jezebel, not Elijah. Joshua who led the children of Israel into a promised land, not Moses. Solomon who built the temple, not David. Though death comes, the promises and purposes of God stand firm and secure. And that is the hope we have as believers. That's the hope we have as an anchor for our souls. I did not say the last point. The last point is this. To trust the better word. To trust the better word. Four things that you can do to restore your hope. Still rest your soul. Pray your pain. Meditate from past victories and trust the better word. There's a story in Judges 20 and story of uh, the church, of, of the Israelites fighting the Benjamites, you know. And um, the story goes that you know, the Israelites received a word from God to fight the Benjamites. They were commissioned by God to do so. And you know, they, the first uh, time they went up to fight the Benjamites, you know, it said that they lost heavily. They lost 22,000 of their men. And then they came back, you know, and the children of Israel, uh, they, the Israel, Israelites, I'm sorry, fasted and prayed and sought God again. And they said that God told them, hey, go up again and, and, and fight. And they went up and fought against the Benjamites again. And it said that on the second day, they lost 18,000 men. They lost twice. Both times, you know, with commission and unction from the Lord, they went against the enemy and they lost. The first time, 22,000 men. The second time, they prayed, fasted, went up again, they lost 18,000 men. And they said the third time they came back to the camp, they laid offerings before the Lord and they almost intensified their sacrifice. They took it one more notch. They fasted, they prayed, and they're like, God, we need a word from you. God, should we go up again? We have lost so much men. We've lost already. We are in despair. We are in distress. We are without hope. Should we go up again? And God said, go up for this time. I'll surely give them into your hands. And on the third time they went up, they completely destroyed 
the enemy. They completely destroyed the Benjamites. For most of us, you know, success looks like a change in circumstance. But I'd like to suggest to you, success in the kingdom is the willingness to pray again in spite of unchanging circumstance. Every loss you experience on earth is temporal. But when you choose to stay true to course, you choose to overcome that temptation of abandoning hope, you choose to be governed by Christ when all sorts of logic, reasoning, rational thinking seems to suggest another way. That victory stands in eternity. Success in the kingdom is the willingness to hope again, to pray again, to seek God again, to come into His presence again. When everything is around you is telling you that it's not worth your time, that it doesn't work, that it's not practical. But choosing to have faith and to walk by it, not just profess it, but to live governed by that faith and hope.